Welcome to episode 195 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We've got a great crew today. Uh, and thanks you, thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. We're going to have an interview, uh, talking about the masking and unmasking, uh, uh, process and the legislative efforts to deal with it. Uh, uh we're going to have Susan Hennessy, a Brookings fellow, uh, um, uh, podcaster on the Lawfare podcast and uh, uh, the Rational Security Podcast, uh, and executive editor of Lawfare. Uh, uh, we're also going to have Andy McCarthy, uh, legal affairs editor at the National Review. Uh, Andy was um, uh, one of the first and most serious uh, prosecutors of foreign uh, 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 terrorism in the United States. He went after Sheikh Abdul uh, Rahman and others for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, uh, and he's been a persistent commentator uh, ever since. Uh, um, Andy, I have to say, you are, you probably don't fit in very well when they have reunions of the Southern District, because uh, I get the sense <laughs> that all those uh, other guys went on to practice law at big firms and express standard Manhattan political views about the world? Well, they have to uh, – I guess I have the uh, fortuity of, of being able to rant, which they can't. Ah, so yes, I, that's when right. I see my old pals, I, what I get from them is jealousy. Um, <laughs> and then when I – when I look at what uh, what kind of money they make, what I have is jealousy. So it, it, it balances out. Yep. Uh, yeah. Was McC- was uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Judge Mukasey uh, on Southern District before he was a judge? He and Rudy, who Rudy Giuliani hired me uh, and Jim Comey, by the way, back in the um, in the mid '80s. And Rudy and Judge Mukasey were contemporaries in the office in the '60s. Wow. Okay. Well, Judge McKenzie, he uh, he is not letting um, a, a, he's not doing a lot of self censorship, is my impression. He he's been pretty hard. <laughs> no. Nope. Nope. Okay, and uh, for the news roundup, uh, we've got um, uh, Phil West, who's uh, the, uh, Steptoe's chair and the head of the Tax and Transactions Department. We've got Nick Weaver uh, uh, back again, uh, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in computer, the Computer Science Department there. Uh, uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. And Jamil Jaffer, uh, there is nobody on this panel uh, who is... Uh, uh, engaged in much self-censorship. So uh, uh, we're delighted to have Jamil here. Uh, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to step down to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, Phil West uh, sent me a note saying his daughter had looked me up on Wikipedia and wanted to know why um, I, it showed me not having returned to Steptoe and Johnson uh, in, in uh, uh, 2008. So I added that plus the tag about having uh, uh, returned to, to practice law at Steptoe more times than any other lawyer because now it's, it's, a, it's a shtick. Uh, and we'll see if Wikipedia actually lets that pass their ferocious uh, uh, editorial team. So let's jump right in. Uh, I, 
Last week saw the Supreme Court argument in a big tech case that's been building for years, uh, uh, Carpenter against the United States. The question is whether um, the government can get uh, access to um, cell phone location data, basically tower dumps uh, uh, or tower information um, uh, with a subpoena or a 2703D order or whether they uh, have to get a search warrant. Uh, um, I listened to the argument uh, on the MP3, and uh, uh, I have to say um, I think it's highly likely that uh, although Michael Dreeben did a great job, um, it, the, uh, the SG is going to lose this case, is my guess. Uh, it was uh, uh, Justices Kennedy and Alito were obviously troubled by the idea that once you start picking and choosing among the uh, uh, the kinds of uh, data that you say, oh, that's too sensitive, we ought to let it, uh, we ought to require a search warrant, that the uh, third-party doctrine is going to become a Swiss cheese, uh, and that if you were going to start with any test like sensitivity, you would not get to location data until about uh, the 30 uh, elements of data in. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I thought there was a wave. Uh, so Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer basically were saying we're, uh, we're eager to find a, an exception here. Uh, and uh, Justice Gorsuch, in one of his first outings, at least that, that I had paid attention to, was all over uh, the Solicitor General with a theory that um, somebody whom I will not name because he might appear there described to me as cockamamie, and I think that's probably right. His idea was, well, this data about where you are, which you gave to the cell phone company so they could find you and send you calls, um, is data in which you continue to have a property interest. And once there's a property interest in that data, then there needs to be a warrant, or at least it raises questions about property intrusions that only the court can uh, resolve. And Congress's effort to find a compromise here, which Congress has done, uh, counts for nothing because once they've acknowledged that there's a, privacy, a, a property interest, it's up to the court to decide whether that's a property interest that ought to be protected by uh, a warrant. So uh, my, my quick count is two for the government, four against uh, with Justices Ginsburg and Roberts and Thomas hanging out. I think uh, that... Um, they're going to find a fifth vote and maybe a sixth in that in that crowd, uh, um, and so the third party doctrine's going to be. Uh, well, I think we're going to get decades of litigation, and the, the, every one of these justices will um, rue the day they said, "Oh yeah, I'll just decide it's sensitive," because uh, there will be hundreds of equally sensitive or more sensitive uh, third-party uh, pieces of data brought back to them saying, well, this obviously has to have a warrant. So that's, uh, I don't know if anybody else followed that. I thought it was uh, fascinating, and uh, I'm not going to ask Jamil, who clerked for Justice Gorsuch, to defend him because that's uh, um, awkward. Um, uh, in the absence of further comment, I want to ask Phil to take us 
quickly through the other big news of last week, uh, which was, well, we're going to have a tax reform bill, uh, and what it means for tech, and in particular Silicon Valley. Uh, they've got all that money overseas. I don't know if that's the most important thing. Uh, this is an effort, I think, to get them to bring it back. Uh, um, but how is this? This is also a score-settling bill for Republicans to some degree, uh, as, as the Harvard uh, Endowment Committee could tell you. Um, uh, so are there, is there any score-settling with Silicon Valley here? Well, so much to talk about, so many things in this bill on process, policy, politics, revenue. Um, let's just try and keep it um, to what happened that most directly affects tech. Um, of course, the corporate tax rate for U.S. tech companies is going down from 35 to 20. Of course, most tech companies' average effective rate on their worldwide income was well below that, so you might say, gee, why is that a good deal? But the answer to that is that the foreign income of those companies will now be tax-free, not just tax-deferred. Uh, and that will drive the effective rates uh, even lower. So that is good news. Of course, the big uh, question was, what do you do with all the cash that's over there? And um, I think the dirty little secret is it wasn't about actually bringing cash home to deploy here because anyone wanting to make investments in the United States would find a way to make those investments. But you could borrow 1% probably. In particular at these low rates, yes. So um, it wasn't really about that or uh, whether the cash was effectively able to be utilized in the United States even without a direct repatriation. But uh, the question is, what are you going to do with that? The two ends of the spectrum are bring it, allow companies to bring it home under the new regime tax-free so that that income that was formerly uh, tax-deferred becomes tax-free like the future earnings would be, mm -hmm. or uh, tax it at the full rates. And, of course, as with many things up on the Hill, there was a compromise that was reached. Uh, the rates are higher than they were in 2004 when a similar repatriation provision came into effect. That rate was five and a quarter. Uh, there was and a lot of people brought the money back for that. A lot of people brought the money back. Uh, now you don't have an election or an option. The, all the money is deemed to have come back. The rates in the Senate bill are 14.5% if the money's in cash. If it's not uh, that liquid, then it's a 7.5% rate. That was the latest change right before the bill got passed on the floor. Um, you can credit foreign taxes if you've paid any against those U.S. taxes, so the rate could be even lower. Um, so that's the heart of it. Uh, what companies aren't going to like as much are a series of anti-base erosion measures that accompanied this new territorial system. Again, so we had three elements, low corporate rate, no tax on foreign income, and bring home your old earnings at a reduced rate. The cost of that is an anti-base erosion regime that's in the new legislation. Uh, base erosion is familiar to tax lawyers as an element of the notorious BEPS project at the OECD, the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. Uh, yeah, okay. And um, this is the U.S.'s attempt to implement BEPS, but, you know, not just 
on a blank slate like some other countries have done, but in conjunction with this favorable territorial regime that has been brought in. So there's some uh, sugar with the medicine here. And uh, the base erosion provisions um, are very interesting. Uh, the Senate bill uh, has a couple of uh, useful and intriguing acronyms for them. There's the um, Global Intangible Low Tax Income Regime. If you follow that, it's the guilty regime. <laughs> uh, and then there's the Base Erosion Anti-Avoidance Tax, which is the beat. Yeah. And so people are going to try and have to figure out how to beat the beat. So these are, this is the same set of uh, acronym uh, uh, jockeys that gave us FATCA uh, as a uh, well, um, different people, but same uh, same same idea exactly. Um, it's a little bit more mellifluous than FATCA, I think. But uh, um, anyway, the the point of these the guilty tax is aimed mainly at U.S. multinationals. And the beat is aimed mainly at foreign-based multinationals. And it's the guilty tax that the tech companies are going to be focused on because they have a lot of low-taxed, intangible foreign income. And, um, you know, we can get into the details of how it's calculated. I think that's beyond the level of detail uh, we should get into here. But um, it will add a supplement to that regime of not taxing foreign income. So some foreign income will be taxed, computed basically uh, with reference to the foreign taxation. If you have excess returns over a certain amount attributable to low-taxed intangible income abroad in your subsidiaries abroad, uh, you're going to end up paying tax. Um, some U.S. multinationals may also uh, get affected by the beat. It's aimed mainly at foreign-based multinationals. Um, but more would have been affected in the House bill. And the smart money is that the Senate is going to prevail in the conference over the House provisions. And I guess I'll close by just talking for a second about what that process is going to be. So the House has passed its version of the bill. The Senate's passed its version of the bill. Uh, today, in all likelihood, the House is going to vote to go to conference with the Senate. Um, the Senate bill will likely be the starting point because the revenue constraints are tighter in the Senate. With the Byrd rule, they have to pay more attention to uh, where the money gets spent in the first 10 years or in the second 10 years. Um, and so that's one reason why it's likely to start with the Senate bill. And uh, There'll be a reconciliation. Uh, the conference committee will produce something for the president's signature. Uh, they're aiming to get it to him before Christmas, and there's a good possibility that'll happen. But they're not trying to get it to him before the special election in Alabama. No. Uh, no, I think with uh, Senator Corker being the lone dissenting Republican on the Senate floor. They can, uh, they can afford to lose one they more. They can afford to lose one more. Exactly. Wow. This is, this is so reminiscent of, uh, uh, of the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, all right. Uh, 
basic uh, result for Silicon Valley is this is not necessarily good for them, but it's probably better than the way they're being treated in most of Europe, right? Well, it's actually good, and it's better than the way they're being treated today. This is the result of a generation of efforts to make sure that foreign income is not taxed in the U.S. at all, and that's a huge victory. Uh, and the rate on the historic earnings that are overseas that are being brought back is not as low as they wanted, but uh, better than a stick in the eye that they get to uh, bring it back without uh, uh, without the full rates being imposed. Right. And again, they can use foreign tax credits to offset a portion of them. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I now feel well-armed for uh, Christmas uh, cocktail parties on this question. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, the other... Uh, Remarkable development in the last uh, week has been how much the Justice Department uh, has been doing uh, with um, uh, indictments and uh, guilty pleas. Uh, uh, they found and got a guilty plea out of yet another NSA uh, uh, exploit hoarder. Um, uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, what do you make of this um, uh, this plea, other than that uh, apparently you can be a pretty good hacker right into your late 60s? Um, I think it's interesting some of the spin on this, that like he was supposedly taking stuff home to work on his resume over five years. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that I think is really interesting is this is reportedly the Kaspersky guy, the guy who had the horribly infected home computer full of stuff. Right. Um, who turned it all off. And this is... Right. Uh, who turned off his, his protection so that he could uh, run a, a pirated version of a Windows product, if I remember right. And even if a fraction of this is true, he deserves several years in jail. <laughs> but the interesting thing I find is the speculation that this is the source for the shadow broker's dumps reads hollow. We still don't know how that got out. And the reason why is this, like Hal Martin, he's a hoarder. He takes stuff, takes stuff home, like him, General Betrayus, etc. Common, common phenomenon, it looks like. Yeah. But the shadow brokers dumps, both the swift dump of uh, PowerPoint and the like, and the uh, Two of the three tool dumps were all customized things. So these were all not generic stuff that would be stolen, but stuff that had to do with specific individuals. And so, for example, we know a lot, actually, about the um, PowerPoint document because there's metadata in that, and that's from Texas. And this guy's up in uh, Maryland. Why would he have the contents of a Texas operator's unclassified side Windows workstation? So that means, I, I take it, that there are at least two other serious uh, foreign intelligence uh, uh, leaks uh, one of the stuff that Shadow Brokers uh, has been releasing and one of the Vault 7 stuff that, uh, that relates to the CIA that uh, uh, is also being released. Uh, there's at least two more that we apparently have not yet plugged. 
and the the Vault Seven really disturbs me because within an hour of that dump being released, we in the public were able to determine when it was stolen and from basically what internal CIA server. So unless the CIA was um, taking the money to spend on insider threat and spending it on hookers and blow, they should know exactly when and who downloaded all that stuff. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Uh, and in fact, I, if I remember, uh, um, uh, Krebs did an analysis of and, and kind of outed everybody whose metadata uh, was on the Shadow Brokers uh, uh, files, and none of the names that he produced are the people that have been uh, accused of wrongdoing. Yeah, and um, so we don't know whether one of them had their official work workstation hacked or something else, um, and those identities have been known for a while. It's just that the press overall has not tried to out them because, let's face it, there's no evidence that, that, that they, those they people did, anything wrong, did no. any wrongdoing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Susan, what is the NSA budget for hookers and blow? I can neither confirm nor deny that there's a budget for that. I, I, I will say, look, um, you know, look. I, I think all of these breaches reveal a sort of an unacknowledged issue at the core of the insider threat stuff, which is that, look, you know, you can you can do a lot to make sure somebody is who they say they are, um, and you can do a lot to ensure that people are only getting access to what they're supposed to be getting access to. But at the end of the day, an organization on, of this scale you have to trust people to appropriately handle the information that they are entitled to access to, right? So unless they're imagining setting up Fort Meade with like an airport where every time you go in and out and you have these huge lines, you know, at the core, these issues, you know, probably are going to persist, which means that we're going to have to develop a risk management strategy that starts to uh, think about things like resiliency as opposed to just this, you know, look, we're going to we're going to build a big wall around the building. We're going to dig a moat and nothing ever is going to get out again. There's also other things that have basically leaked out but kind of dropped off. So we had whoever leaked those Signet summaries to WikiLeaks. Oh, yeah. We have whoever leaked the uh, TAO Ant catalog to Jacob Applebaum. We have whoever in New Zealand leaked the X-key score rules. Um, there have been a lot of leaks where there hasn't been any public acknowledgement of arrests. So the Chinese have figured out a way to do this. First, they, um, they hire quote-unquote security firms to do their hacking for them. The, the, the Ministry of State Security uh, um, has a, was using a uh, private, quote-unquote private uh, firm, Boyusek, uh, uh, to engage in hacking, uh, at least according to the U.S. indictment. Uh, and then when they're caught, they just go out of business. And so you say, oh, well, never mind, they're gone. Uh, uh, what, what lessons, Nick, would you draw from... The Boyusek indictment and the story that goes with it, I thought it was pretty interesting. I did, too. First of all, it suggests a fair amount of moonlighting, that it's hard to tell in the indictment when hacking for the boss ends and hacking for personal profit begins. You know, I, I, otherwise, that, that, does, that does remind me that... 
30 years ago when people were making sneakers in uh, China, um, they'd go over and the line would be running and they'd, they'd run two shifts uh, making sneakers for the guy who had designed them and was going to sell them back in the United States. He'd be really happy. He'd go home to the uh, hotel to sleep and they'd always run a third shift for themselves. I, and then they'd sell it, you know, out, out the back door. I, that is, you know, that business model seems to be alive and well in the, uh, uh, the, the cyber espionage business as well. Yes, but other than that, um, here's a question. How is Boysec different from half a dozen Beltway bandits that we don't even know the name of? I, uh, very little different, I think, except that there are guys, not their guys. But yes, it does right. raise the question, so uh, the are there going to be indictments? Uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I think it's appropriate to be a little cautious about uh, uh, extracting stuff from metadata is that just um, enables others to uh, frame indictments. We're going to see that, you know. Uh, luckily, the Chinese are not into the same kind of in-your-face reciprocity that Putin is into, but they're not far off of it, and so we could see indictments uh, uh, of our own uh, TAO guys uh, in the not-too-distant future. Or if some of those indictments come from Germany, Greece, or um, Belgium, or other places like that where we know um, our guys have been doing their job. Yep. Yeah, well, yes, I, unfortunately, that is, uh, um, uh, that is all too realistic a worry. Yeah. Um, the, the other topic that involves China and arguably cyber espionage is a DHS Homeland Security uh, uh, investigations report uh, that was really a, a remarkably aggressive takedown of DJI, the, the by far dominant provider of um, uh, drones and probably uh, the provider of most of the drones that were in the lawfare uh, shootouts, uh, I suspect, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, HSI, or at least their Los Angeles Intel analyst, uh, says uh, they, uh, they were engaged in dumping, that they're taking all the data back to China or Taiwan or Hong Kong, the Chinese government has access to it, that they're targeting U.S. Uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, it was a very aggressive six-page uh, uh, memo and then got an equally aggressive response from DJI, whose spokesman called it insane and called on the government to withdraw it. <laughs> Now, the DHS report had what? Moderate confidence? It, it, sometimes it had I high have... confidence. Sometimes it had moderate confidence. It, 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 it you know, it flung those uh, around depending on which particular uh, um, conclusion it was reaching. But it was high confidence on stuff that was pretty obvious and only moderate confidence on things like targeting of um, uh, critical infrastructure, if I remember right. I have high confidence in saying that if you want Anything not to be known by the Chinese government, do not store it on the cloud service provider of a Chinese company. <laughs> it's, it's their version of the 702 sauce. Sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. And, um, of course. And the other thing is though, is DJI is actually, 
in many ways, remarkably vulnerable. And the reason why is the stuff is actually so commoditized that you can go out and buy a $60 camera drone that includes six-axis accelerometer, self-leveling flight, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the um, monopoly that DJI has on the more expensive drones is in big trouble of being killed by competition. So no wonder they're worried. Yeah. Well, um, and Jamil, I don't know if uh, you have encountered this as an issue, a public policy issue for the U.S. government. Uh, uh, the, the Defense Department did say to uh, um, all defense units, stop using DJI drones and take them apart and, uh, you know, crush them with your car, if I remember right. It was uh, a, a pretty aggressive um, a response uh, uh, to what must have been a very widespread use. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's obviously a, a concern uh, if, in fact, they have good uh, intel to suggest that DJI is, in fact, engaged in this effort to gather information about U.S. military installations and, you know, uh, critical infrastructure targets. Uh, the paper is, you know, it's hard to know how credible, how credibly to take this. I did think one thing that was particularly interesting was, you know, the, the report cites a lot of uh, different underlying reports that it relied upon, but I thought one of the things that was really interesting was, the fact that uh, they uh, saw the information collected from big DGA drones as influencing commercial transactions, also, wherein um, you know they were they were surveilling, uh, they were using these DGA drones to surveil uh, wine vineyards, uh, wine producing areas, um, and then the Chinese uh, were coming in and buying uh, neighboring vineyards. And so um, this is actually a larger trend uh, that I think we're beginning to see of. Uh, Chinese using intelligence, Chinese companies using intelligence collection, uh, in some ways to shape the market, uh, for, uh, for their, uh, their purchasing decisions and their ability to go after U.S. companies. Um, and, and I think that's troubling, uh, if it's, if in fact it's accurate, uh, because it puts a larger effort. We, you know, we saw that, that upward tick in IP theft, that significant upward tick that's now sort of tapered down a little bit, hasn't ended, but still there. Um, but this new sort of trend towards uh, manipulating financial markets uh, potentially for purchases or sales or uh, to take advantage of certain things. I think that's a very interesting trend that's sort of laid out here uh, and maybe a real a bigger problem to come. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and I guess I, I wanted to point out that Boyusek is that this is the first time that we've caught somebody who works for the Ministry of State Security in China engaged in cyber espionage, and it is the first cyber espionage, commercial cyber espionage case since the um, the famous agreement between Obama and Xi. Uh, and I think it does raise the question whether that was really an agreement to get out of the business or to get the PLA out of the business of doing commercial cyber espionage, because the PLA was clearly being brought to heel uh, by Xi at the time. Uh, and uh, he may just have transferred the entire mission to uh, the Ministry of State Security. Okay, two other uh, things that I I had to uh, handle quickly, Uber, uh, or as Jim Lewis uh, now increasingly calls them, Unter, uh, is uh, Unter a cloud again, uh, and and this was a 
bad one. Uh, uh, the judge in the Waymo uh, trade secrets uh, case uh, is truly bent out of shape by the discovery that uh, uh, a large number of communications apparently occurred on Wicker and Telegram and other uh, products that are designed to uh, um, uh, wipe out your uh, your messages in a very short order, maybe a few days. Uh, and uh, uh, he has more or less said, you know, if you're – um, engaged in discovery and you're also hiding your communications with this kind of equipment, um, all I have to do is decide that uh, you didn't, you, you caused this stuff to disappear because it was bad for you and I'll just draw the worst possible inference about uh, what you were talking about from that, uh, the fact that you were using these tools. Um, uh, Uber has said we're not going to allow people to use this. We're going to uh, move to uh, a, a commercial version of Wicker that holds on to things for at least a year. Um, uh, but uh, I think this is a this strikes me as a big problem from a legal point of view. Uh, and uh, saying we're not going to let you use this for your commercial communications, but you can have it on your phone doesn't really answer the question whether you're engaged in, you know, using it uh, uh, when you're talking about something that you don't want the company or the competitors to know about. Well, watching that case from Silicon Valley, it's more than just using Wicker. It was meeting with your lawyers to go over instructions on how to make sure that this stuff is hidden. <laughs> and it's just... What it comes down to is Uber is a weird case. Uber is a company whose basic premise is sod the law, we do what we want. That is their value add. Yeah. Um, and that that extended into all sorts of other areas is like water is wet. We should not be surprised by this. I guess that's right. And, and I, by the same token, I guess we shouldn't be surprised to see that uh, Tim Cook is over in uh, uh, China giving speeches about however, how uh, we're proud to have worked alongside many of our partners in China to build a community that will uh, join a common future in cyberspace. Uh, uh, not a lot of defiance, uh, none of the, uh, uh, the anti-Comey uh, uh, rhetoric that uh, uh, they use in the United States. Uh, uh, but at the same time, this is kind of a surprise. They have had just a week of disastrous security news, uh, uh, all of it self-inflicted as far as I can tell. Yep. And to be honest, in return, they've annoyed me enough. I think I might feed you some better trolling ammunition. <laughs> Not only does uh, – does, um, Apple now seem proud of cooperating with China, but have you ever heard of the Idle 3 wiretap on iMessage or FaceTime? No. Well, Apple actually has the technical capability to provide wiretaps on iMessage and FaceTime due to how the cryptographic architecture works, and as far as we know, they aren't providing that. Ah, Wow. Okay. 
So it's discovery time, or maybe they'll use that uh, that uh, famous and maybe uh, uh, unicorn-like uh, um, uh, 702 technical assistance uh, um, uh, effort that uh, uh, Senator Wyden is so worried about to uh, to find more about it. All right. In speak- fact, actually, that is my suspicion that what Wyden is worried about is that the NSA has wised up to Apple's, um, how shall we say, less than forthright uh, behavior on um, that and is um, basically going after Apple because it's a um, Heisenberg backdoor in iMessage. They can either close it or they can give access to it. And as far as I can tell, they've done neither. Huh. Okay. The cat is both dead and alive. Yep. All right. Um, So last topic, uh, taking us to our discussion of masking and unmasking, is 702. Um, Jamil, have you followed the latest on 702? Uh, It looks as though we've now had... I think four different bills put forward, uh, uh, two Judiciary and two Intelligence Committee bills. Um, and increasingly it looks as though House and Senate leadership are just going to pick one, dump it into a, uh, a must-pass legislation, and call it a day. Yeah, I mean, that, that does seem like the current plan, although, you know, never uh, leave it to chance that uh, Congress will wait till the very last minute. Um, and will actually do the easiest possible thing. So I still think there's a uh, a not unreasonable chance that what you'll see is a straight-up clean reauthorization of a short period uh, because they can't even get to consensus on one of uh, the House or Senate uh, pieces of legislation. What you can be assured is that that bill, if it does go into must-pass legislation, will not be uh, the House Judiciary Bill. It will almost certainly be uh, the Senate Intelligence or looking maybe more likely the House Intelligence Bill. Uh, because the Senate Intelligence Bill has some, has some challenges in it. Um, but, you know, I, I would not, I would not, you know, don't, don't think that, Cong- that the Congress won't drop in a short, you know, one year, two year straight re-off. Um, and, uh, you know, be it, that being the easiest thing to do to kick the can down the road yet one more time. Oh, God. Um, and, uh, and, 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 yeah. So I actually think they might do something even worse than that, which is do a, uh, a short-term, two-month, you know, six-week type thing, uh, which is what they might be heading, like the current game of chicken. That might actually be the only way out of this. Wow. That would be a disaster. I, I You know, there's so much talk about a, a, a must-pass leadership solution that they must be discussing that. Yeah, so I think at this point, the, the, you have to sort of consider the Hipsy bill as the last in time. You know, you had this HJC bill, you had the SSCI bill, they were really, really far apart. The question was, or sort of the assumption was, all right, the Hipsy bill is going to smooth out the edges. The Hipsy bill came out, I think that answers a lot of questions, which is, it looks a lot more like that SSCI bill than it does like the HJC bill. And so I think that's a pretty powerful sort of indication that the powers that be are going to move towards something that looks like fundamentally clean reauthorization with, you know, sort of some reforms around the margins. So uh, this is really interesting. This is sort of half the regular process. There was markups, there was votes, there were hearings, but then there were these kind of, the votes were aimed not at deciding what goes to the floor, but at impressing leadership with how much uh, 
consensus there was around your bill and your committee. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think at the end of the day, what's being revealed here is that the, the sort of the fundamental debates about 702 are not about sort of process and reforms. They're, they're ideological. They're about whether or not the United States should be conducting this form of foreign intelligence for this purpose, how we should be thinking about, you know, incidental collection, those kinds of stuff. And, you know, um, this has provided a great opportunity for both sides to sort of pound their fists on it. But at the end of the day, those actually aren't things that you can resolve easily in sort of a compromise legislation. And so I think what's coming out is that there's been all this sound and fury about 702 and reform and this stuff. And and what we're going to see here is one side is going to lose and one side is going to win. And the question right now is sort of which is which. I I think the wind is blowing sort of in the direction of we're going to see less, not more reform. You know, that said, somebody could gum up the works by, you know, putting out a a sort of a continuing resolution, uh, you know, a a short term reauthorization, very short term. That would be really bad news kind of for everyone. Yeah, you know, my my sense is not that many people care. It's never quite become But those that, that do care it. care a lot. Yes, but they're not it. They don't <laughs> I was going to say that those who do care care a lot, but you know, it's the eternal problem with this issue uh which goes before uh the changes of 702 uh to virtually every single dispute that we've had in this area over the years, which is that uh, people want political credit for saying, you know, we want more privacy, we want uh, we want more controls on government, but they want to make sure that they're not accountable if something goes boom uh, and, and, you know, something awful happens uh, where they know that uh, <laughs> they're going to be blamed for it and, uh, they, that blame might be worthy, at least uh, uh, in, in the sense of uh, we didn't do everything we could have done to protect the country. So, uh, I, you know, there's I think there's gamesmanship that goes on, not just between the competing uh, ideological camps, but within them, uh, where they're trying to posture in a way that they get credit for having one set of political sensibilities, but distance themselves from any consequences from the positions they take. So my my uh, exactly right. Yeah, my 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 working analogy is Thidwick the big-hearted moose. If you remember, he that's a <laughs> Dr. Seuss book in which the big-hearted moose has a spider move into his antlers, and he says, "Oh yeah, sure, what the heck?" And before he know it, knows that he's got uh, squirrels and raccoons and birds uh, living in his antlers, and and that's sort of the process of. Um, adding little things that shouldn't make a difference and get, allow me to tell my constituents that I am, uh, you know, harnessing the, the deep state, uh, I, or, uh, you know, uh, fascism in America, whatever your, uh, ideological predilection is, uh, without actually having to worry that it'll blow back on me. And they just keep coming up with new things to the point where, you know, at, at some point, the intelligence community is only going to be producing privacy reports uh, and no intelligence at all. Uh, well, let, let's let's turn to the topic that kind of surprisingly has turned out to be the most bitterly partisan of the bunch, uh, I, which is unmasking reform, even though it really has nothing to do with 702. Uh, I, and Andy, why don't you give us a quick overview of why unmasking has been an issue in the last uh, six months? Well, I think, Stuart, that it's gotten caught up uh, in the politics of the 
collusion investigation, uh, where part of the response to that by the, the Trump people was to say, look at the uh, abuse of intelligence collection authority. Uh, they thought that that was a, an effective political rebuttal. And I must say, at the beginning of it, I was inclined to think that there was more to this than there might be. But to, to just give a little background on it, uh, the collection authorities that we have under FISA uh, enable the intelligence community to do these uh, massing, massive suck-ups of uh, all kinds of data and communications, and inevitably uh, American people get uh, swept up in all of that. Uh, generally speaking, uh, their identities in intelligence reporting are uh, masked, which means that they're simply not revealed. Uh, and there are certain uh, officials in the intelligence agencies who have the authority to unmask if there is a good intelligence reason uh, to do that, like you need to know the identity of the person in order to understand and exploit the value of the intelligence collection. Uh, I think for the most part it goes on uh, uneventfully, uh, but what happened, I guess, toward the end of the Obama administration is uh, the president issued an executive order toward the end of the administration that uh, widened the dissemination through the intelligence community of raw collection. Um, and there was an increase, if I'm remembering this right, of the uh, number of officials who were able to do uh, or who had authority to do unmasking. And at the same time, because of the um, because of the Trump-Russia concerns of people inside the administration, um, there was encouragement to members of Congress to demand as much information, intelligence information, uh, as the community had collected with respect to any contacts between uh, Trump associates and Russia. And at the same time, that's all going on. There's a spate of leaking of classified information in the media. So put it all together, and uh, the suspicion is that there's basically a plot to leak classified information, which includes revealing the names of Americans who happen to be connected to um, the, either the Trump campaign or Trump somehow, uh, so that that information could uh, get from intelligence reporting and into the media. Uh, and that was basically the, the uh, scandalous way that this was presented. Um, what what has backed me up about it from the beginning, or at least uh, from shortly after the beginning, is uh, if, if President Trump and the people around him were uh, somehow abused in this fashion, then nobody has better ability than President Trump does to declassify information and publicize whatever was scandalous. And they have not done that. So that sort of leads you to believe that they like having uh, the, the specter of unmasking to complain about rather than disclosing what the underlying facts are. And the only real disclosure on this that we have from anyone responsible in the administration or any responsible official 
is uh, General McMaster saying of Susan Rice that, uh, you know, he's looked at this and she hasn't done anything wrong. So we don't have any real evidence that there was abusive unmasking. We have a lot of smoke but uh, no fire. And if there is fire, we have the person who's in a position to reveal it not revealing it. So, Susan, uh, um, you've been a skeptic about the unmasking scandal uh, or uh, uh, pseudo-scandal for a while. Uh, um, do you think there's anything there? So, look, this is one of those things in which it's, it's uh, almost impossible to sort of have a firm stance on from the outside because the way the unmasking uh, sort of procedures operate, they're fundamentally fact-dependent. And that means that from the outside, you can't actually say for sure this is a totally proper unmasking request or it's not a proper, you know, it's an improper unmasking request. So I'm sort of, I'm with Andy in the sense of, you know, the, the way to describe it is there is no indication whatsoever that anything inappropriate here happened. I think the fact that Trump's own national security advisor has apparently reviewed this and determined that there was nothing inappropriate probably sort of should put that question to rest. You know, this has sort of become, um, uh, conflated or wrapped up in two uh, sort of distinct I don't, scandals, controversies. I don't even know what we call these little blips on the radar screen these days. The first is the Trump, uh, President Trump's tweet uh, accusing the Obama administration of wiretapping him at Trump Tower. This sort of, uh, uh, you know, was was brought up, you know, sort of Devin Nunes and had sort of gave this press conference immediately after that that Trump officials had been incidentally collected. So it was sort of linked to that. Um, uh, and then it's also been linked to sort of this um, uh, leaks of information about calls between uh, uh, Mike Flynn and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. I actually think it's probably fundamentally not related to either of those things. Um, the Trump Tower tweet, I just think, is a figment of the president's imagination, so I, I don't think it can be related to that. On the Flynn issue, which I, I do think that there are very serious leak issues to discuss there, I actually, my you know suspicion, although I have no underlying knowledge, is that Flynn wasn't masked in the first place. So I think the way to think about it is, you know, minimization is the process, and, un, and masking, which is sort of a colloquial term, is sometimes the outcome of that process. Um, but you can you can include the identity of a U.S. person if it's necessary to understand or assess, assess the value of intelligence, uh, the, the value of foreign intelligence. So I think it's more likely that Flynn wasn't masked in the first place and either his name was used or more likely his generic identifier, right? I, I, I seem to remember when I was at uh, NSA, and they have exactly the same masking procedures, uh, and I once read a report that uh, uh, took out the name of the uh, person who was talking to the uh, foreign official and inserted Vice President of the United States. Right. <laughs> kind of. What, the what, generic what the identifier. <laughs> yeah. of, right. Because you can use the title, and that's, that's consistent with the rules. So, I, I, you know, yes, I, I pretty strongly think that there is, there's absolutely no indication of anything wrong here, which then, you know, brings us to a lot of questions about why we're seeing reform efforts, uh, you know, in, in the various pieces of legislation for 702. Which we've seen from both House, and, uh, House Judiciary and uh, House Intelligence, right? Yes. Although, but not not from the Senate at all. No, and and Richard Burr has been on record saying, um, I believe he his the quote was, uh, "That's uh, that's Devin's issue or something." <laughs> uh, you know. So yeah, me, well, I I, I I still think that it's worth, you know, there's a there's a few funky things here that ought to be looked into. Like why is Samantha Powers um, doing 
unmasking, not just unmasking, but unmasking on a broad scale. And to my understanding, when she, you know, gets asked about it, uh, basically says that the, you know, the, the actual decision to do that, even if it was done on her name, was, was made by somebody else. I mean, that sort of stuff, that doesn't mean that, that the unmasking was inappropriate, but we ought to find out how that happened. So she and did have, I, 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 I would my, harp on. Andy, it's my impression, uh, and it's just a, an impression because I wasn't inside government at the mm-hmm. time, that she had a reputation as an enthusiastic consumer of uh, uh, NSA's product. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that these are essentially, um, you know, sole-sourced media. Really, Eli Lake is the only person who's continuing to, to report on this thing. And so, you know, as these allegations about what Susan Power or uh, Samantha Power may or may not have asked for come out, I, I do think it's worth sort of taking with a very heavy grain of salt until some other media reports match her or corroborate the, the particular accounts we're seeing. I, I just would say, you know, just to hop on my hobby horse with every one of these issues. Uh, but the real problem here is that we've forgotten how to discipline uh, people who break the rules. And I'm not saying necessarily that anybody here broke the rules, but my point is um, every time there's some kind of a scandal, Washington's answer to it is, well, we have to manipulate the surveillance authorities to make sure this never happens again. And the sensible thing would be to say, no, the authorities are fine and, and they're what we need to protect the country. What we ought to do is find out what happened. And if someone broke the rules, then either discipline them, fire them, impeach them, or whatever you need to do. But, uh, you know, the rogue actors are the problem. It's not the surveillance authorities. Jamil? I think that's exactly right. I think Andy is spot on about this. You know, it's worth noting, though, that the, uh, you know, the first big unmasking controversy was actually in the Bush administration, and it was our uh, U.N. ambassador, John Bolton, who was accused of, of unmasking improperly. And so it's funny now to see the, you know, these Democrat congressmen so completely panicked and calling it outrageous and ridiculous uh, when, um, you know, some of the same people were pointing the finger at, at, uh, at John Bolton just not so, not so long ago. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I wonder if there's something about the uh, ambassador, being ambassador to the UN that makes you particularly inclined to want to use this stuff and then maybe to be careless with it. Uh, um, I do agree that, uh, I mean, it was a fountain of leaks. I mean, the transition had more national security leaks, uh, particularly about Trump and his travails than we've ever seen in the past, and that reflects how bitter the transition really was. Uh, uh, and uh, and we, we have fewer national security leaks now than we did at that time, probably because uh, everybody is... Uh, you know, uh, leadership is much more focused on it, and maybe we will have. I think I, I saw something that suggested we had more open leak investigations now than there had ever been uh, in the Justice Department. Yeah, I mean, clearly the Justice Department is looking at this issue. I'd, I'd offer a slightly different account of why we've seen so many leaks, and which I, I agree are incredibly uh, disturbing, uh, beyond just the bitterness of the transition, which clearly existed. Um, you know, we also had a breakdown of the process at the top in a way that I think you have to sort of view as, da- you know, damage that the system was attempting to work around. You know, you had uh, the president-elect of the United States, the vice president-elect of the United States going on national television and saying something that, 
members of the intelligence community, both at the career and political level, understood to be factually false. And so I, I do think that as we think about, okay, what happened and how are we going to prevent these things from happening, you know, in the future, yes, sort of the notion of accountability and discipline is one piece of it. I also think we have to, we have to think about this sort of the uh, ex exceptionalist or, or what used to be exceptionalist of, the, of that moment and, and ask ourselves, you know, what are the mechanisms in place whenever we have that kind of uh, essentially process failure, a political failure, um, you know, how are we going to build in roots, you know, for the intelligence community to, to better communicate with Congress or, or something else? Because I think the idea of just, well, you know, sit down and shut up, that's, that's not going to address the problem if you give them If you give them people that the president trusts who can convey their message, which is pretty much what's happened at the CIA, that seems to solve the problem. That's one way to solve the problem. The problem, of course, in the transition is they had a leadership that was not particularly inclined and not particularly trusted by the new guys when they conveyed messages. Uh, uh, so if they said it's the intelligence community assessment that X, uh, the leadership of the transition was inclined to say, well, that's probably not true. Yeah, look, I think my concern at this point is um, you know, we have a, a process for unmasking that I think works relatively well. It's pretty controlled, right? So Admiral Rogers has testified on the Hill that he's delegated his authority. So um, either the director of the FBI or director of the NSA actually has to sign off on, on an unmasking request, and then they can delegate that authority. Rogers has said that there's about 20 people at NSA that have that delegated authority. So this is, you know, in the realm of intel. It's a pretty controlled process. My fear now is that um, because it's become a proxy for anxiety about leaks and sort of other things, um, we're going to get legislation either that codifies the existing procedures or actually adds new, you know, quote-unquote protections that are going to have inadvertent or unintentional consequences become a compliance trap long-term. And so my fear is that sort of Republicans – you know, maybe they're acting in good faith because they they really do believe that there's some kind of concern here. They're gonna they're gonna include these pieces, uh, uh, you know, this language in the legislation in ways that is actually, you know, the ability to add, to request an unmasked piece of intelligence is is kind of important for you know executive branch decision makers. Oh, absolutely. And they're gonna and, gum and, that you know, up. If it's, if it's a terrorist attack, by God, you know, you want to know what the guy's name is, American or not, right now, so you can find him. Uh, uh, so I. Um, uh, and Susan knows this because she's seen the draft, I have actually signed on to what the House Intelligence Committee did, which was basically take the existing unmasking rules, apply them, and then add one tweak. Uh, there is something called the Gates Procedures, which were drafted uh, in the early 90s with uh, Robert Gates as DCI, uh, basically saying, and we're going to have some special rules for unmasking of congressional identities, Congressional uh, uh, congressmen get uh, intercepted all the time talking to foreign officials, uh, uh, and we're going to uh, notify um, the House and Senate leadership that uh, that a congressional identity has been unmasked, um, and that struck me as a you know deeply cynical and probably appropriate form of check on uh, uh, partisan abuse of uh, um, the intercept. Uh, uh, what the House Intel Committee does is it says, why don't we apply that same basic rule to the transition? So if somebody is a transition official who is intercepted and then unmasked, we're going to tell the uh, chairman and ranking member of the Intel Committees that that has 
happened, which seems to me, you know, that if you're going to borrow a set of procedures, and that's not a bad set of procedures to borrow. But as I said in the piece, the last time I, I stood up for some civil liberties uh, uh, measure, it was a disaster. It was the wall. Uh, so tell me, Susan, what do you think are the worst things that could happen as a result of this? Well, look, so something that's genuinely time-limited to a six-week transition period once every four or eight years, you know, we have to be candid. The, the risks are not tremendously high, and so maybe this is a gimme and we put it out there. You know, the risk is is that uh, – so the the intelligence is already disseminated, uh, you know, sort of with the standard of necessary to understand or, or access. And and the person who's who's receiving it, who is you know a lawful officer of the executive branch who has important national security functions, says, I need to know something else. I need more in order to make a decision or or, or understand uh, you know understand this piece of intelligence or or advise the president or otherwise discharge my functions in, in matters presumably that are related to the national security of the United States. We don't want those to be slow or clunky procedures. And so my fear is that whenever you're talking about Gates procedures, which are DOD procedures, you know, there's a level of flexibility. It's, you know, it is treated as binding law within the executive branch, which is a very stringent standard. Um, but because the executive branch gets to tinker with that language, change it when necessary, um, uh, there is sort of, there's, there's built in. More flexibility. Exactly. As soon as you put something in a piece of legislation, you have to abide by that legislation. And so my fear is that somehow the circumstance arises and at the end of the Trump administration, at the end of whoever's coming next, where for whatever reason, there's actually an imperative need to see this stuff and, and they aren't able to, they aren't able to get it. And so while I, I agree that it's a minimal risk for a short period of time, I see absolutely no gains to be had because I don't really see the scandal. And so I think you're sort of your moose in the antlers analogy is the one here. Like, this is like inviting more people into the antlers for reasons I, I just can't, I, I can't identify the justification. Andy, Jamil? Yeah, I'm worried about inviting the judiciary into the antlers. That's, mm. um, yeah, so me too. My, uh, my view of it is for what it's worth. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with Susan. I don't think anything that slows up the works is uh, something we ought to try to avoid. But, you know, playing the long game, if the political climate is such that if you don't make some accommodations that at least look like you're uh, aware of the potential abuses and taking some steps that there can be accountability over them without interfering with the actual mission, it, you know, if if we don't make those kind of accommodations and the political environment is telling us the alternative is going to be you're going to now have to make a showing to a court before you can can make what ought to be routine disclosure within the intelligence community. To me, that would be the calamity. So if this is what's necessary to be done so that that doesn't happen, uh, I'm okay with it, even though I wouldn't have loved it in the first place. Well, somebody should check. I'm just thinking about this as we sit here. Um, I wonder if the Privacy Act might give somebody a cause of action for uh, what they considered unpro improper unmasking. Uh, so maybe the judiciary is not completely out of this. Uh, I wish the readers could see the grin coming over Stuart's <laughs> face right now as this no, idea no, well, dawns. I, 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 have, I have never felt so much like a card-carrying <laughs> member of the ACLU in 20 years. Uh, uh, Jamil, I, 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 I'll give you a last word on this topic. Well, I mean, look, it's uh, we're you know we're in a whole sort of Alice in Wonderland world where um, there's major debates taking place as we run up to the end of the Congress about whether this core collection authority targeting foreigners located overseas, not Americans, 
uh, for collection just happens to take place in the United States, and we're talking about all sorts of changes that have to be made to protect America's privacy and civil liberties, um, you know, and it's it's kind of astounding that we're even having this conversation at this point, uh, given the complete lack of any evidence that uh, there's been real problems, whether it's on unmasking um, or on uh, on sort of reverse surveillance or or massive use uh, by the FBI to find criminal information. There's just no evidence of any of these problems. And so to Susan's point, you know, I don't see the problem on unmasking, and so I don't see the need for a fix. But I also feel the same way about a lot of the stuff in all these 702 bills. And so, um, you know, count me one for I'm not. I, there's a lot of things being done today uh, that don't seem necessary or required, and that may make things harder for no apparent reason and make it harder to protect the nation. But here we are. And so, you know, on um, perhaps somewhat of a somber note, that's where I think I'd leave things. Okay. All right, uh, so uh, Susan Hennessy, Andy McCarthy, Nick Weaver, Jamil Jaffer, and Phil West, thank you all for uh, uh, your contributions. This has been Episode 195 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. If you've got somebody to suggest as a guest uh, and they come on the show, we'll give you one of our Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, uh, and we hope that you'll once again join us uh, uh, as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.